from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. This is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. First couple weeks, I was feeding her every four hours through the night, too. So that was my first time doing that. It was not the, not the most fun. <laughs> but I got out, out to see the night sky a lot. This week on our show, it's part three of our series, Have Sheep, Will Farm. The story of Lauren McAllister and Brett Volp, their family, their flock of sheep, and their journey towards a farm of their own. We'll learn about their dreams for Three Flock Farm and the opportunities and obstacles along the way. Their story just ahead, so stay with us. And now to Renee Reed for news. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Guest farm workers are slated to receive a 6% wage increase in 2020, thanks to the Department of Labor. But an ag workforce coalition says farmers will struggle to pay. As commodity prices continue to plummet and the effects of trade wars impact America's agricultural sector, some farmers are saying they can't afford increased wages for seasonal farm workers. In a letter addressed to Senators Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, the Agriculture Workforce Coalition is asking the legislators for changes to the H-2A visa program, which farmers use to legally hire guest workers. Despite a surge in H-2A hires in recent years, many farmers say they are struggling to afford the expenses of the program. Employers are required to provide housing and travel expenses and pay the adverse effect wage, which can cost between $1,000 and $2,000 per worker. The adverse effect wage rate, or AEWR, is an hourly rate that's slightly higher than the regional minimum wage and recalculated every year by the Department of Labor. The 2020 AEWR, announced earlier this week, increased by 6%. Critics say that means farm labor costs will increase without taking into account rapidly decreasing commodity prices and farm incomes or the cost of other benefits provided to H-2A participants like housing and transportation. The largest AEWR increases are slated for states in the Corn Belt, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, at 10%. The Ag Workforce Commission is asking legislators to address the AEWR and to provide guest worker program access to year-round agricultural sectors such as dairy, livestock, and mushrooms. The Farm Workforce Modernization Act, recently passed by the House, would expand the H-2A program to year-round workers and offer growers some relief on wage rates. A group of chocolate companies and watchdogs are calling for more regulations to crack down on rampant child labor and environmental damage in the cocoa supply chain. Chocolate-making giants Mars Wrigley, Mondelez, Barry Calibot, and others issued a statement calling for the European Union to bolster human rights and environmental protections in global cocoa supply chains after a string of failures in self-monitoring. The statement said that cocoa is a major driver of deforestation, that most cocoa growers live in poverty, and that the cocoa poverty trap has led to the widespread use of child labor. The group includes the Voice Network, a cluster of organizations dedicated to sustainability in cocoa, as well as the group's Rainforest Alliance and Fair Trade. 
They called for the EU to pass laws that would require preventative measures, annual reports on human rights and environmental impacts, and third-party audits. Many cocoa farmers in West Africa send their children to work on farms to help family income, taking them out of school to do so. Some use child labor trafficked from other areas. In 2001, chocolate companies pledged to crack down on child labor practices by 2005. The voluntary agreement, known as the Harkin-Engel Protocol, did not reach its goals, despite several extended deadlines over the years. Some companies tried a certification process using groups like Fair Trade, the Rainforest Alliance, and the Dutch organization UTS to inspect farms and report child labor and harmful environmental practices. But a Washington Post investigation in October into the UTS operation found that efforts from four audit firms they worked with were spotty and unreliable. The probe found that 4,900 UTS-certified farms were located inside protected forests in Ivory Coast in violation of the Voluntary Protocol on Environmental Degradation. Internal reports also found that UTS-certified farms were even more likely to use child labor than other farms. UTS stopped certifying farms in April and has joined forces with the Rainforest Alliance pledging to improve oversight in West Africa. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Taylor Killo for those stories. And thanks to you, Renee Reed. Thank you, Kate. Earth Eats is a show about food and farming. When we talk about farming, there's so much to explore behind the scenes. In our series, Have Sheep, Will Farm, we're taking a look at what it takes to start a farm from scratch. Farms are often handed down through families, but not always. This is a story about one couple without an inheritance and their path to farming their own land in Southern Indiana. In the first episode of Have Sheep, Will Farm, we met Lauren McAllister and Brett Fulp. They're beginning farmers with two kids, Ramona and Jasper, and they started their farming practice before they had land of their own. It started as a wedding gift. It started with a wedding gift. I love that. That's like the beginning of our book. I like that. Starting with a wedding gift, two mamas and a you. Remember the Jacob sheep? They're a smaller breed with at least two sets of horns and unusual colors of wool. They're a more primitive breed. They don't, they don't need a lot. Yeah, and the wool is kind of like a mid-grade. Um, there's like three colors, really, in this breed. Um, sometimes they have the white turns a little uh, purplish, like I think it's called lavender. Lauren and Brett are raising them for wool and for meat. They were living and farming on rented land outside of Unionville and had grown the flock to over 20 sheep. When the landowner sold the property, it threw them into a crisis. Their friend Bobby Booz, an experienced farmer, suggested they were ready to start seeing themselves as beginning farmers, and she recommended they seek out an FSA loan to purchase some land of their own. In part two of our series, I spoke with Lauren and Brett's loan officer, Kathleen Walters. I'm Kathleen Walters, and I work with the Farm Service Agency, and I'm a farm loan officer. Kathleen works with the Farm Services Office that serves Monroe County. She walked us through the ins and outs of FSA loans, and it looked like Lauren and Brett were well-positioned for this type of loan. They already had a few years of farming experience under their belts, enough to know what they were getting into. The FSA loan requires a farm business plan. 
They call their business Three Flock Farm, and their plan includes six elements, sheep, geese, and chickens, those are the three flocks, and then ginger, mushrooms, and herbs. The sheep will provide meat and wool. Mostly we'll be using the geese and the chicken for eggs. I'm not sure we'll be slaughtering them at all, really. And then um, the herbs are medicinal. The mushrooms, in a sense, are medicinal, too. Lauren and Brett are particularly interested in cultivating lion's mane mushrooms. This type of mushroom is currently being explored for its potential in improving neuronal health. Early studies look promising for those experiencing signs of dementia. And the mushroom's wellness potential is what excites Brett and Lauren. Business planning isn't entirely new territory for them. Lauren has an undergraduate degree in business. I think part of why I'm so excited is because, you know, I went to undergrad and I did that thing with the four years and I know what I want to do and I went into business. And then I kind of didn't and everything changed and my priorities shifted to growing my own food and sharing the resources I have. And so to create a business plan was almost like the culmination of all the training I had done, but for what I actually wanted. And so I feel like when we put that business plan together, it was easy to do in that sense, because I had the tools and I had the why. And so when Kathleen said to me, you know, this is a really great plan, I thought, of course, (laughs) because it's not coming from a task. It's not someone else's goals. It's ours. It's 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 a objective that we feel passionate about. Really gave us more confidence because we were like, oh, we have. We we're like, oh, we're farmers. Oh, and it's like because it was just a normal thing that was our regular life. And then this program's telling us not only does it have value, we want you to do more of it. Sure, yes. <laughs> but finding land and securing a loan takes time. Where would they live? And where would they keep the animals in the meantime? They found a house to rent in town for their family and the two dogs. But what about the sheep and the horse? With the help of our friend Greg, who's incredible, he found a place that our sheep could stay along with Fine the horse until we can close on our new house. Our friend Dwight is thinking about becoming a sheep farmer. And so he said, can I kind of have like a practice round with your sheep? And he had all this land that needed to like have mowed down. You know, this is what animals are for. That's what husbandry is so beautiful because they're doing the things, taking down some locusts. I think he had a lot of invasives that he just wanted to get rid of. And they took him down in days. I mean, we should have taken before and after photos because the sheep were so vicious like they just took all everything down to the ground so he's thrilled he's going to turn over that land and make more beds for his farm so having a transition place for the animals was crucial to the process and so was finding a place to set their sights on securing the land so quickly allowed us to feel comfortable even getting this transition space and even considering continuing to farm because frankly if this program hadn't come up at the time that it did we would have stripped back. We probably would have butchered a lot of them and only kept a few of them and tried to rent out in Gosport or something because we didn't want to shut down, but renting is not conducive to animals of any kind. They found a place near Ellettsville, which is just outside of Bloomington. 25 acres. And, you know, it's a nice limestone veneered home from the from built in 58. Uh, it has a full basement. It has, it had good bones. They secured a purchase agreement with the owner. That's required for an FSA loan application and filled out all of the paperwork for the loan. 
When we heard from their loan officer, Kathleen, in the last episode, they were approved, but they hadn't closed yet. This kind of like turned the corner when she said to us, you've got your loan approved. That was the biggest moment because it said to us, one, we can move forward. We don't have to butcher more than a couple of this year. Two, that the expansion can happen, right? That we can keep breeding and we can continue to grow. And then the third thing is really that we're feeling supported. The research that Kathleen has to do to kind of justify the loan demonstrated what our business plan put out there. So Kathleen really solidified those future plans and And dreams that we had. spoiler alert, it all worked out. They got the land. Lauren and Brett have a farm of their own. I met up with Brett out at Dwight's place a few days after closing. It was sheep moving day again. If you recall, they had already done this in the back of a Chrysler minivan. This would hopefully be the last time. When I arrived, Brett was corralling the flock using his movable fencing system. He hoped to make two trips with roughly 12 sheep for each trip. He backed the van up and secured the fencing close to the back of the van, doors flung open. He encouraged them to head towards the van, and he opened a small tub of minerals to entice them into the van. Apparently, they crave these minerals, and they can be a strong motivator. These sheep weren't having it. They were reluctant to hop up into the van. Brett knew he only needed to convince one to get into the van, and more would follow. But they were being stubborn. Eventually, one hopped in, and a few more. But then one would jump out, and then another. And then they'd jump back in. It was comical, if not slightly frustrating. Brett displayed a saintly level of patience with the creatures. But at one point, he grabbed a particularly fickle ram and lifted him quite awkwardly into the van and slammed the door shut behind him. That was 12. We were ready to roll. He secured the fencing for the remaining sheep, and we headed out to the road. I'm trying to just coax them, you know? Yeah. You just want to take it easy. Don't, don't spook them. But every once in a while, you have to catch one. <laughs> What'd you call that one? He was a bit of a clown, yeah. He's a little goofy, I think. The last one to go in? Yep, the the what was he? He was probably the tenth one, and then the uh, then he was the twelfth one, and then the thirteenth, and then he got out again, He's back in, in and out. Yeah. Once we got going, it was remarkably quiet, considering there were twelve sheep and two humans in a Chrysler minivan. The new place is only six minutes from Dwight's, where the sheep had been staying. The trip was uneventful and brief, especially compared to the day when Brett brought his horse to the new place. Uh, Yeah, I ended up walking him from Dwight's here. It's like six miles, but it was, it's along the, the old railroad tracks that are going to be a trail to Ellettsville. So he lived right off of that. And I was like, oh, that'd be fun to just walk, walk my horse. It's like, well, it's like a coming home thing with my horse and like seeing this place and being a... Yeah, just having more of a connection to the land around, as well as giving my horse, like, uh, an exercise. (laughs) Like, hey, we're going somewhere, and this is where we're going to end up. 
Once we arrive, and Brett opens the back of the van, the sheep tumble out into the grass with no hesitation at all. That's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Getting them out was rather uneventful. They yeah. just kind of left out, yeah, and that was no that. Big deal. <laughs> He's starting them in a patch of land close to the house. It doesn't take them long to start grazing. Must feel good to be. That feels really great. Yeah, that was a lot of stress, but yeah, it worked really well. Now we can put all our energy into making this a home, which will take a while. The house needs some work before move-in, but it won't be long now. After a short break, we'll join Lauren and Brett once they've moved into their new place to hear more about dreams come true. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. check back in with Lauren and Brett once the whole family has moved in. It's a few months later, and it's lambing season. Standing on the edge of a pasture with their young son, Jasper, I spot a few of the babies. The one that was just looking at us. He has been bottle feeding my dad because he keeps kicking her away. Oh, interesting. Does that just happen sometimes? Yeah. Actually, it's it's it cap it happens all the time until she she's older. She's gonna start to eat grass. Okay, so you just have to bottle feed her till she's ready for grass. Yeah. We call her Finder. Uh huh. Why Finder? Be, because she. She's good at finding things. And she, she sometimes nibbles on her hands. Brett comes out of the house with a bottle. It's time for finders feeding. Come on, little one. This is my baby. She thinks that she she thinks I'm her mom, definitely. The first couple of weeks. I was feeding her every four hours through the night too. So that was my first time doing that. It's not the not the most fun. <laughs> but I got out, out to see the night sky a lot. 
didn't, you didn't just keep her in the house with you? <laughs> I did after the first uh, couple days. But at first, I wanted her to, to. I wanted to see if I could get the mother to take her back, and it's important to get the colostrum from the mother the first couple of days. So I just left her out, and the mother pinned up with her, and would actually hold the mother for her to to suckle for two days. It was kind of fun. It gave me an excuse to camp out. Luckily, I was a carpenter for many years before we took this project on. Inside the house, I sit down with Lauren and Brett to reflect on all that's happened. I would love to hear from you how you're feeling now. <laughs> this has been difficult, the whole process. Uh, very thankful for it, thankful for the opportunity of the FSA loan and all of that, but it's... Um, I don't know, because I was in school and just finally took my state qualifying exam, but um, the amount of work we had to do on the house and pay for two places while we while we rented and lived here, the opportunity was great, but it was really hard and has still is to keep our uh, head above water, financially especially. It's like, it's just, I guess it's like this everywhere. It's just, it was really hard. And, it, and I think hopefully we can uh, come out of this and have a little more breathing room. I don't, for, I don't know if I can foresee that, honestly. Um, I don't know how long it'll take to feel solvent or whatever, but it's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, every, I think everybody goes through this anyway, renting or buying, a, just buying a house. But um, we're glad for the opportunity to have more than just a house and to continue farming and all that um, and do more farming than we, we ever have as well, so. I think it's growing pains, honestly. It feels really awkward to think like, this is how adolescence is, where we got a lot of responsibility all of a sudden and realized how much it took to take care of it and like the focus and the energy that needed to be there so that we were supporting it and thinking in longevity, not just like how we're going to pay the taxes this year, but maybe thinking like five years from now or even how we'll label the food and who we'll work with and our experience with the sheep, making sure that that's, really sound we're not just getting involved in breeding but like maintaining their health and their happiness yeah i think they struggled more this year than ever with the move and just the, the lack of fencing uh the lack of good grays here it'll take a few years to establish that when i spoke with them lauren had just secured a grant from SARE, which stands for sustainable agriculture research and education her grant is to research a method using spent grains, which is a byproduct of the beer brewing process, as a substrate for growing mushrooms. I couldn't imagine when she would find the time for this project. Well, my husband says I'm going to do it on Sundays because I'm going to be home more on Sundays. So, Kate, the short answer is Sundays. Sunday is Sarah Grant Day. There you go. <laughs> and it's not like Lauren and Brett are home on the farm every day. Their kids have school and activities in town, and they're both working jobs off-farm, especially Lauren. So I work full-time at IU. <laughs> I'm there 40 hours a week, and then I work at the SRSC teaching yoga. And then I teach yoga at the Monroe County Public Library, which I love. It's prenatal on, Friday, on Monday nights. And then I teach at Vibe. And, yeah, I'm doing a lot to kind of support the long-term bills that we have outside of what we're putting in so when we're talking about investing in the house not just like finishing things but 
finding solutions to problems that we discovered as we move through. Like, oh, surprise, that pipe needs to be replaced, all of it, now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've been talking about the investment of money, and I get how how real and immediate that is. But to me, the time, when I think about working full time, raising a kid, going to school, having other stuff, any one of these projects that I could see in this room feels overwhelming. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's <laughs> that's what's blowing my mind because it's like you asked for a, a house, did you? With a big farm, did you? Oh, there you go. And it's like, well, crap. I did ask specifically for this, and here I have it. And now I have to put even more energy and focus than when I was dreaming of it to like make it real and like translate all that time into like finished walls but more importantly a home and i think that's i think that there's a lot of imposter syndrome at the beginning because we're thinking like we aren't really farmers who got this loan what are you talking about like who are these people like are we these people and um we've been them the whole time honestly and a home of their own isn't their only dream they're hoping for community involvement and have already had a group out on the land planting fruit and nut trees. They want the farm to become a healing retreat space. Remember, Brett is a massage therapist and Lauren is a yoga instructor, and they have a passion for medicinal foods and herbs. Lauren is also thinking about what it means to be a black woman owning farmland in light of the history of racial discrimination that has pushed so many black families off the land. And the way that Jasper's gonna grow up as a black boy his interaction with land and nature and farm is also important to me. So it's all wrapped together because we are an interracial couple, we're in a mixed family. They're looking into what it means to commit the land to a trust of some kind, to preserve their long-term vision for generations to come. I said this would be a three-part series about Three Flock Farm, Lauren and Brett's journey to their own farm on their own land. And we made it to that part. But I'm curious about the project going forward, even since this last interview was recorded. What does it take to get their products to market? Will one of them have the chance to work full-time on the farm, or will they both keep their off-farm jobs? So look for another check-in here on Earth Eats sometime in the near future. That is all we have time for today. Check the website for a photo of Lauren, Brett, and Jasper, and of Finder, the baby lamb. That's at eartheats.org. EarthEats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Lauren McAllister, Brett Folk, Kathleen Walters, and Jasper. 
Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio. 